So we are in week two of our I Am series, the I Am statements of Jesus, where we have the opportunity to look not only, um, not just at what other people said about Jesus, but what Jesus said about himself. And today we're going to be reading from the Gospel of John. Now there are some noticeable differences between perspectives in the Gospel of John than from the other three Gospels, not least of all because the synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were writing uh, primarily about the ministry of Jesus in Galilee and the surrounding areas of the north. Now John's Gospel, by contrast, centers almost entirely around the ministry of Jesus in and around Jerusalem during the temple feasts. So I think it's important to note this, particularly as we've begun our gospel reading as a church for the year. These, these are not biographies. They are gospel. They are good news. There's not, they're, they're not biographies. There's too much source material for that to be the case. So each writer had to choose what particulars he would include, what, what material they would cover for their purpose. And they accomplished their purposes in different ways, but the purpose is the same, for the reader to meet and experience and embrace the person of Jesus Christ. So John writes for a particular audience, and if he's concentrating on the events and discourses in Jerusalem, then it's very likely he's speaking to a more theologically savvy audience. The discourses recorded in John reflect less of the narrative style of the other Gospels and more the rabbinical style of the synagogue teaching in first century Jerusalem. He's speaking to people who know something about their religion, which means he's speaking to you and he's speaking to me. And he self-discloses his purpose for writing. He says... These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So why does he have to do this? Why does he have to write to people who already know a lot about their religion so that they may have life and believe? Because he knows that despite all they know, they are still missing something. And, and they're actually missing a really important something, something that would change the way that they think and feel and act. I had a really terrifying experience a few months ago during the uh, For Her Speaker series. My dear friend Katie was giving the message that evening and I was so excited I was gonna facilitate the Q&A for her when she finished. But during the message I got, a, I got a call from my husband and I didn't pick up but I texted him back and said, hey, I'm in session, what's up? And he texted me one word, peanut, followed by one more word, help. Only it didn't even, he couldn't even get help out. It just said hep. So, so obviously I'm alarmed. My husband has a very serious peanut allergy. He, he will die if he eats them. So I'm running out of the sanctuary and I'm texting, hey, are you okay? To which he responds with one last one word text, call. At this point, I have bolted from the sanctuary. I'm frantically in the lobby trying to call my husband. He's not picking up, and it's not like going to voicemail either, so I know that it's ringing. He just can't answer. So we have these little, this little tracking thing on our phone, so I pop it open to see where he is, and he's at sweet, good golly, Miss Holly, in Waterford Lakes, and then all the, all the pieces start to come together. He, he has gone to, the, to sweet with the Larsons, our friends. He has clearly eaten some kind of cupcake that had peanuts hidden in it somewhere, and now he is asphyxiating to death in his truck, uh, you know, in front of our daughter. So I'm, I'm beside myself. I, I call the police. I tell them that my husband has eaten peanuts. He's allergic, and, and you know, I suspect that he is now unconscious somewhere near good golly Miss Holly in a white Toyota Tacoma. So they call, they call the cupcake, why are you laughing? You don't know if he died yet. Gosh, come on. So, no, he's, he made it, it's cool. 
Um, so, so you know, they call the cupcake shops to make sure he's not there, and, they, and he's not there, so, so they dispatch an ambulance to his location. So I'm in the lobby, and I'm just losing my mind, and so I'm I know it doesn't matter, but I'm frantically trying to call him, and I know it doesn't, it's not going to work, but I call him, I call him, I call him, like, 15 or 20 times after I call him, he answers the phone, and he's like, hey, Fave, what's up? What's up? Oh, my gosh! So I am ashamed to say that at that moment, as I collapsed to the floor on my knees, I yelled out a phrase, okay? And, 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 and I yelled it loudly, and I, I won't repeat that said phrase, but let's just say it wasn't safe for the little ears, okay? <laughs> I was really upset. I, and, and as I soon learned, uh, Rob, you know, had eaten something tainted with peanuts, but he was fine. He was just a little tingly in the mouth. He had his EpiPen with him. He just wanted me to come home, because if you use your EpiPen, apparently you have to, like, go immediately to the hospital. So he just wanted me to be home with him. Here's the important bit of information that I was missing. Earlier that day, he had dropped his phone, and the the spider web, you know, crack that it made in the phone made it impossible for it to register his thumbs when he was texting. So he tried and tried to give me more than one word answers, but it didn't work. Then, immediately after he texted the word call, his phone died. <laughs> so he takes it out to the truck to plug it in to let it charge, and it takes about five minutes to get it back on, during which time an ambulance was dispatched to somewhere near Good Golly Miss Holly in search of an unconscious man in a white Toyota Tacoma. <laughs> Having a missing bit of information really affects our behavior. So I tell you this for two reasons. One, just to illustrate that point. When we don't have all the information, it changes how we act. And two, if you happen to have been in the sanctuary on Monday, August 28th, 2017, and you heard, you know, unconscionable language being yelled from our church lobby, I just wanted you to know that I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> Missing information changes our behavior. John is writing to people who know a thing or two about their religion because they are still missing something. They're missing the most important something, in fact, the, the, the something toward which all of their religion, which they slave away over day in and day out, all of what all of their religion is pointing to. And I think this is applicable to us because the people here tonight, we, we, we know a thing or two about our religion, but I would guess that on some days we still feel like we are missing something. And it certainly affects our behavior because we go in search of that thing we think we're missing, something that will give us purpose, you know, maybe a self-help book, maybe a financial plan, maybe a relationship, but the things that we grab out for just don't seem to cut it. And in fact, the things that we reach out for, not only do they not help us, but they tend eventually to hurt us. So what is it that we're really missing? The passage we're going to drop in today, um, in on today, is from John chapter 8. A little context about what's happening up to this point in the story. There's a series of events that have led up to this declaration that Jesus makes about himself in the conversation that follows. In chapter 5, Jesus has healed a paralyzed man on the Sabbath, and the Jewish leaders are furious about it. He broke the law. He, he worked on the Sabbath, and in response, Jesus, Jesus kind of begins to hint to them that he has authority over the Sabbath. It's not an outright declaration of deity, but it's close. And then in chapter 6, he, he miraculously feeds thousands of people bread, and, and, and afterward he claims to be the bread of life. So in these chapters, Jesus has been progressively revealing his true identity to them. But the people who, who love God and, and, and they long for the arrival of Messiah, the Savior of the world, they, they just don't get it. I mean, not even, not even his brothers 
who, 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 his own flesh and blood, they don't get it. They encourage him to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles and start to perform miracles so that he'll get like some of his fans back. They say to him, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret, Jesus. A public figure, like he's aspiring to be a senator or something. They just don't get it. So Jesus refuses to go to the feast with them. He waits until everyone has gone, and then he goes up in secret. And on what we are told is the last and greatest day of the festival, he stands up and says what follows, beginning in verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the Pharisees challenged him, here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I came from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one, but if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You don't know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put out. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Once more, Jesus said to them, I'm going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are, f you are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but the one who, is sent, who has sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own, but I speak only what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. So I want you to understand the, the, the full picture of, of the outrage that this would have caused for the religious leaders. The, the Feast of Tabernacles was a Jewish festival and an annual Jewish festival that recalled the wandering of Israel in the wilderness when God led them through the wilderness into the Promised Land. It celebrated God's miraculous provision in the wilderness, specifically uh, the water that God gave them from the rock and specifically the pillar of fire and column of smoke, the, 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 the form which God himself took to lead them through the wilderness. In the hot day, the cloud of smoke shaded them from the blazing desert sun in the cold night. The fire gave them the light and the heat and showed them the way. So during the festival, they would enact certain rituals to, uh, to commemorate the provision of water and light. Every morning, they would fill these bowls with water and pour them out next to the altar. Every night, they would light these enormous candelabras, so many of them that it would give light to the, to, to the surrounding city all night long. Water and light. God's provision. So I just, want you to, I, I just want you to picture this. I want you to try to imagine this. Here's Jesus at the festival where they are celebrating God's guiding light. And then he stands up next to one of the candelabras during the lamp lighting ceremony. And there is where he declares, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Guys, I think Jesus is hilarious sometimes. 
just, just one chapter ago in chapter seven, he, he, he stands up next to the altar where they pour out the water and says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. He's tricky. He's, he's so sharp. He has waited for this moment. This moment when what he says will be most inflammatory, most offensive, but also when what he is suggesting will be most clear. Standing next to the lamp, which represents God's light, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He's like, you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm suggesting. Jesus is forcing them to answer the question. Am I who I say I am or not? They begin this exchange. They say, you can't testify on your own behalf. And he says, I'm not the only witness. My father is my other witness. And they ask him this loaded question, where is your father? But the inflection is more like, where is your father? Didn't your, didn't your mom get pregnant before they were married? You, you're fatherless. You're illegitimate. Where is your father? And so Jesus responds, I am from above. You are from below. If you don't believe that I am the one I say I am, you will die in your sins. And they're like, who do you think you are? Once you've lifted up the Son of Man, Jesus tells them, then you will know that I am who I say I am. And what an ominous foreshadowing indeed, because we know that when Jesus was lifted up on the cross at Calvary, the, the, the sun was put out. Darkness came over the land from midday until three in the afternoon. The light of the world had been put out and the entire land felt the cold. He's revealing his true identity and he's forcing them to reckon with this question. Am I who I say I am or not? And as modern readers, you know, we, we, we think it's kind of obvious, but they just don't see it because there are certain things that we are inclined not to see, things that we will not see unless we force ourselves to. I, for example, never see a mess in my car. It drives Rob crazy. He says, you know, when you hit the brakes, nothing should move. I don't see a mess in the car, but when I hit the brakes, you know, some stuff moves. Uh, the, the, the glass dome that I brought in, you know, mid-December to work clinks against the coffee mug I have on the floor. My passenger's getting, like, pelted with old shriveled Cheerios that my daughter <laughs> spilled two weeks ago, but I don't see it unless I force myself to look. Rob somehow loses all consciousness when he approaches our kitchen sink. Uh, we, we had this conversation a little while ago because I was really grossed out by some trash that I found in there. And, and I had mentioned to him once or twice before, you know, like, can you just throw stuff in the bin instead of in the sink? That would really help. Uh, and he agreed to it eagerly, you know? Um, so I come out into the living room and I say, hey, listen, would you mind just cleaning the trash out of the sink once I've loaded the dishwasher. And he looks at me with this genuine surprise. He's like, what did I leave in there? So I motioned for him to come and look, because I didn't want him to think I was making it up or exaggerating. And this is what he saw there. Uh, half of a buttered English muffin, fully intact, like the whole round thing, uh, a bunch of grapes still on the vine, um, and then you know probably half, half a cup of Cheerios, but they were blown up roughly to the size of Krispy Kreme donuts because they'd been absorbing the water from the sink all day long. But he was genuinely shocked. I know it's not on purpose. He, is, he literally is not cognizant of what it is that he puts in the sink. It's like he walks up to the sink you know, holding like a, like a can of LaCroix and says to himself, where can I put this that's not my hand? You know? So I asked him, could you just do this one thing for me in the new year? Could you just, uh, just, you don't have to change your behavior. You don't have to clean the sink. You don't have to do anything different. I just, when you walk up to the sink and you're about to put something in it, I just want you to stop and ask, can I wash this? <laughs> English muffin will not wash. It seems obvious to me, but, but things can be really obvious and still be invisible to us if we don't force ourselves to look. 
So Jesus is forcing them to look. He's forcing the question, am I who I say I am? In addition to his incendiary claims at the feast, he keeps using this term about himself as he talks to the religious leaders. He says, if you don't believe I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. When you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Some translations say that I am who I say I am, but here's the actual translation. If you don't believe that I am, you will die in your sins. When you've lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. I am. The name that God gives to himself. When he calls Moses to, to lead his people out of Egypt and through the wilderness into the promised land, and Moses says, what, what, what do I tell the people when they ask who you are? And God says, I am who I say I am. Tell the Israelites that I am has sent me to you. At this point, Jesus has left them no possibility of not reckoning with this question, am I who I say I am or not? He will allow no middle ground whereby the Jews can just think that maybe he's a good man or a prophet or an example. He knows they don't need an example. They need a savior. So he forces the question, is he Messiah? You either believe him or you don't. And he forces this question because it is the most important question that you and I will ever answer. Because we can go about all of the prescribed Traditions of our faith, we can go to church, give our tithe, our time, our talents, the work of the church. But if you don't believe that Jesus is Lord, then I'm afraid that you have just found yourself a very costly hobby. Because without Christ, it by definition cannot be Christianity. It may be faith, but it's not faith in something or someone that saves Jesus forces the question. There's urgency here because he knows, he knows that so long as we are blind, we cannot differentiate between something that hurts us and something that heals us. In the dark, we keep getting hurt, but we don't know what hit us. We don't know what hit us. We're, we're, we're all looking for that thing that's missing. And if we grope about for it in the dark, then we're going to get injured even good things can become deadly. A knife in the light is a tool, it's useful, but a knife in the dark is a hazard, it's dangerous. You don't know if you're grabbing it by the handle or the blade. There are things that in the light give us life, they're good. Things we can give thanks for, things that bring joy into our lives, things that we can worship our creator for, but those things can be equally dangerous in the dark. Jesus knows that if we continue to walk in darkness, we will be injured even to the point of death. Where is he forcing the question to you? Where has he drawn a line in the sand and said, you can follow this or you can follow me, but not both? Where is he shedding light, but you're still afraid to look? Did you ever go to the doctor and they weigh you and you kind of like avert your eyes from the scale. After the holidays, when, when I've obviously done some significant damage to my body just by eating everything <laughs> that's in existence, uh, I usually start you know, some kind of weight loss journey. Uh, but I never weigh myself until I have been on my diet for at least a week because I don't want to know. I legitimately do not want to know my own starting weight. They always weigh you with the doctor. Why do they always have to weigh you with, why do they have to know how much I weigh? What are they gonna tell me? You know what, you have the flu because you're fat. <laughs> Eat some broccoli, it'll clear it right up. Why do they have to know, why do they have to know how much I weigh just to give me a Z-pack? 
you know? And they do it in, under the fluorescent lights in front of everyone. It's just all a little too exposing for me. I don't wanna know. I don't wanna know. We're educated people. We think we know so much. We can get a, a little self-righteous about all we know, but let's be honest, we don't always wanna know the true reality of things. We don't want everything in the light. Light exposes us. It shows things as they really are. And I think we, like the religious leaders, uh, are often tempted to reject it, to close our eyes to it. And I think we do this for at least three reasons. I think we, we reject the light because we think we already know the way forward. The religious leaders here, they, they thought they had found the way forward. They thought they could see just fine. They understood their religion, their law. They looked forward to the coming of Messiah, but in a very limited, very specific way. They refused to see him come in this way because it's not the way they expected and they thought their way was better. They wanted pyrotechnics. They wanted hellfire and brimstone. They, they wanted bloodshed, military victory. They wanted to bring the kingdom of heaven by force and they were ready. Guys, they were ready. If, if an authority pressured them to break even one of their laws, they would drop to their knees and bare their neck. They would rather have their throat cut than to break even one of the laws of their God. They had given their life to the law. Jesus forces the question not to, not to embarrass them, but, but because he doesn't want them to give their life to something that won't give them life back. We do the same thing. You know, we, 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 think, we think we know the way forward. We think that we don't need to be any more enlightened than we already are, we see just fine, thank you very much. We do this, not least of all, with our politics, right? And if you don't believe me, spend any amount of time at all on Facebook. Someone could post a perfectly benign status. It's a cold day in Florida, smiley face, snowflake emoji. And then someone, I don't know why the snowflake emoji. Um, and then someone will, you know, someone will come along and they'll, they'll uh, comment and it'll be like, this is all the president's fault, hashtag climate change, hashtag not fake news. You've seen it, I, you do it, I do it, we all do it. Or, or we watch it happening and we say to ourselves, gosh, I'm glad I'm not like one of those people who trolls each other's Facebook statuses. <laughs> We're self-righteous even in our non-participation. And it's, it, it's, it's no good. Because then we believe that the, we can't have dialogue, you know, because we, we believe that the only voice that is reasonable is our own. Problem there is that we're always talking to ourselves. We can't have a dialogue. Without dialogue, without intellectual flexibility, without the humility to, to imagine that there might be more yet to be learned, then the world might still be flat. Leeches might be a great cure for fevers, and I might still believe that flamingos are native to Florida. Hashtag fake news. We reject the light when we think we already see just fine. But do we? Do we really know everything? What would you bear your neck for? And is it possible, is it possible that there is more to be learned? I think we also reject the light because we are disappointed by what it reveals. The religious leaders wanted someone with zeal and reverence to the law equal to or greater than their own. They expected someone with an unimpeachable record, certainly not someone who broke Sabbath, he wasn't trained under a rabbi. He came from questionable parentage, a podunk town. He was unimpressive to them in every way. Even his name, Jesus, Yeshua, that's Joshua. 
And because we're a little further along in history looking back, you know, we look at Jesus and his name is almost exotic, you know, because we know what happens next. But for them it was just Josh, just Josh from Galilee. Just Josh, this backwater town with its unsophisticated accent. I grew up in Pittsburgh in a, in a town, in a place called Allentown, and, and the, the accent, the Pittsburgh accent, <laughs> is strong with the locals. And if you've ever heard it, you will never forget it. It is a very unsophisticated accent. And I could empathize better, I think, with, with the religious leaders by imagining how hard it would be for me to have accepted the Messiah had he come from Allentown in my own day. I can just hear my neighbors talking about him. Hey, Yin's guys hear about Josh from Allentown. Yeah, he's down there at the temple talking about he's the son of God in that. <laughs> what a joker. Yin's watched that Stiller game last week. Oh, don't bring that up. If you don't believe me, go on YouTube, search for Pittsburgh Dad. That's how we talk. I get it. They could not accept someone as unimpressive as this. And we do this too. We, we, we reject things just because they're too simple sometimes. We reject the light because it reveals something, but what it reveals is just so unimpressive. And we see the path forward, but we find it so very disappointing. I know, I know I've gotten stuck here. I've failed to establish habits that would be really good for me simply because they're so unspectacular that I can't imagine they'll actually help. Can walking 30 minutes every morning actually improve my health? Surely not. You know, it's just too simple. People sometimes come to regroup and, and they, want a, they want a shortcut. They want a fast track to, to, to feeling better and having better habits, but the only way to develop a habit is to do it. The only way to make you know, exercise habitual is to practice. The only way to make reading the word habitual is to practice. The only way to stop dwelling on negative thoughts and feelings is to practice, but we, we reject it because it's all just too depressingly ordinary. When you're sitting in the, with your counselor or your pastor or your friend and, and you want help to get unstuck from the place that you've been stuck for so long and, and, and they suggest community and honesty and prayer and spending time in the word with Jesus, do you reject that because it feels too hard or because it feels too simple? Would you be more inclined to heed them if they told you to climb a tree and eat a sausage and roll a boulder up a hill because it sounds more magical? I know. I, I want the magic bullet. We all do. But progress is nothing more than a series of small steps in the right direction. It is the only way forward. But it's very easy to reject because it's not all that we hoped it would be. But I think we reject the light most of all because we fear what it exposes. We fear what the light reveals about us and our reality. The Jewish leaders railed against the claims Jesus was making because it called into question everything, the, the, the foundation of their lives. They, they gave all of their life to the law. They were afraid that all of their carefully calculated and meticulously enforced religion might not be enough to make them right with God. They devoted themselves to this, their blood, sweat, and tears. They'd given everything to the law, and then the light came and exposed it as insufficient, as not enough. Jesus wasn't punishing them. 
He didn't want to leave them alone with all of their religion because he knew that no teaching, no example, no amount of personal adherence to the law was enough to bridge the gap between sinful man and a holy God. Nothing but his blood could do that. I imagine the Pharisees didn't, maybe they didn't reject Jesus because they wanted all the control and all the power. I wondered if they rejected Jesus because they just couldn't bear to face the possibility that everything they'd ever done was not enough. The insufficiency of everything, all the things they'd based their worth upon, were exposed by the light to be not enough. And so they closed their eyes against it. The closer we get to the light, the more we are exposed. Light exposes the truth of how things really are, good and bad. And and when our eyes are opened by it, we are, of course, going to see things that we would rather not. No one wants to discover the depth of their own sin and their own shortcomings. That the thing they've oriented their life around is insufficient or incorrect. We don't want that. We don't want to see. Sometimes we just don't want to see. We don't want to see that our Pride is to blame for our isolation. We don't want to see that those, those harmless fantasies are in fact eroding our marriage. We don't want to see that our work is crowding out our family, our, our God. We don't want to see that, that our accomplishments and talents, these things that we believe make us worthy of admiration and love are actually meaningless in the universe, that we can't be alone with ourselves for very long before we begin frantically grabbing out for affirmation or entertainment. Because the truth is, some days, we too would rather damn and kill the light of life than to see things how they really are. It is just too painful. I know. I I sometimes close my own eyes to the light ten times a day because I can't bear to see what I really look like. We don't want to see that we don't measure up. But but here's the problem with living life with your eyes closed. We are only foregoing one type of pain for another. If we choose to stay in the dark, we will keep being injured by we know not what, and we will not know what hit us. And that injury, that pain that keeps us grasping wildly for relief and comfort, that makes us chase the thing we think we're missing, the thing that will make it all better, but the thing that will make it all better is to turn on the light. Yet, yes, light exposes, but it also shows us the dangers that we're encountering so we can stop running into them over and over again, so we can stop walking into walls and stepping on rocks because we see reality. Right now in our house, we have a a little bit of an ant problem, like big guys, carpenter ants. And I saw a couple in the bathroom, which whatever, you know, bathrooms are damp and warm and they attract critters. But last night, uh, I found one under my bed and that was very alarming to me. If it's under my bed, it could be in my bed. It could be under my covers. So I told Rob I wanted to call the bug guy. He's a little more comfortable with a DIY approach to um, pest control than I am. So he convinced me, you know, let me take care of it by myself. I said, fine. But then I went back into the bathroom and I found another ant inside of my toilet bowl, inside of it, 
in there just chilling, just waiting for some unsuspecting person to sit down so he can stage his assault, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, no, this isn't happening. So I yell for Rob. He comes in, and I'm like, there's an ant in the toilet. And he's, he's like, it's going to be fine. He tries to calm me down. But I am so alarmed at this point that I go to reach for my phone to get the, the number for the bug guy, and there's an ant on my phone. <laughs> on my phone. I'm not making this up. It's like he wanted to taunt me in my paranoia. So Rob realized he'd lost the argument at that point, and he says, all right, you know, I, I promise I'm going to call the bug guy tomorrow when, when, during business hours, and everything's going to be okay. I'll take care of it. Just, just go to bed. Get in bed. I'm going to turn off the lights so you don't have to see any more ants. And I'm like, absolutely not. If they're there and they're plotting an invasion, I want to see them coming. You know, guys, don't you want to keep the lights on when there's danger afoot? Don't you want to see it coming so you can adjust your course? or smash it with a hammer covered in raid. We wanna, we, I, 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 know, I know none of us wants to be exposed. None of us wants to have all of our sin and failure lit up for the whole world to see, but listen, light does more than that. His light, his fire, while it does indeed expose us, his fire exposes, but his cloud also shields us from the white-hot brilliance of the sun. So we are exposed but never consumed. It's true, we don't measure up. The religious leaders didn't measure up, I don't measure up, you don't measure up. No person ever has or ever will save one, but that's only half of the story. We don't measure up, that's only half of the story. We're missing a very important part of the message, which is that he already has us covered. In him, both cloud and fire appear. He is the glory and the covering. Do you understand? We don't, we don't have to be afraid anymore. We don't have to worry about being found out. We don't have to worry about the reality that the light exposes because the reality is that when Jesus took our place on the cross, he offered himself as our substitute before God's judgment. So when God looks down on us, God in whom there is no shadow, no darkness, God who is light himself, when God looks down on us, he does not see our sin or our failures or our faults. He sees only his son. That is the gospel. That is the very, very good news. So let us never again be afraid to open our eyes to the light and let it in. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the light to us. Thank you that you do not see our sin. Thank you that you loved us too much to leave us in the dark. That you came as our substitute. That you came to shield us from the brilliance that, that we are exposed to every time that we step into the light. Lord, we confess that we often still choose darkness, that we still choose to close our eyes to the truth. Lord, light up our hearts with the confidence and the comfort that comes from knowing that we never have to fear what we might see when we open up our eyes. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.